Okay, welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Why Is This Good? It's brought to you by the Naples Writers Workshop in Naples, Florida. And the idea is that we'll talk about stories that we really like from places that are widely available, um, so you can read them in their entirety. We'll read passages here on the podcast, we'll talk about why we like them, and then we'll talk about what we can steal from them for our own work. Um, So my name is Christine, and I am the founder of the Naples Writers Workshop. This is John. I'm John. John, tell us about yourself. You have a doctorate, and this is how we introduce John. Um, I have a doctorate. Technically, the program is called Comparative Studies. Two fields that I compared, I guess, would be uh, uh, cognitive science and literature and literary theory. So I like to think of my PhD being in literary cognition. There we go. John knows why things are good technically. I know why I feel like they're good, but John will tell me why, why I'm right or wrong. And this is our buddy, Rob. Hey, everybody. I am a local short story writer, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Christine. So for this first episode, um, we're going to start with a story that John picked out. And John, you can tell us um, what it is, who wrote it, and, and why you chose it for us. The story is called The Midnight Zone by Lauren Groff. I picked it because I was reading an anthology of stories, and this one just jumped out as being exciting and interesting. and A lot of stuff happened. All right, um, so John's going to read a snippet for us. After a while, I opened my eyes. Two children were looking down at me. They were pale and familiar. One fair, one dark, one small, one big. Mommy, the little boy said, threw water. I turned my head and threw up on the floor. The bigger boy dragged a puppy who was snuffling my face out the door. I knew very little except that I was in pain and that I shouldn't move. The older boy bent over me, then lifted an intact light bulb from my armpit triumphantly. I had chickened the bulb and egg. The smaller boy had a wet paper towel in his hand and he was patting my cheeks. The pulpy smell made me ill again. I closed my eyes and felt the dabbing on my forehead, on my neck, around my mouth. The small child's voice was high. He was singing a song. I started to cry with my eyes closed and the tears went hot across my temples and into my ears. Mommy, the older boy, the solemn dark one screamed. And when I opened my eyes, both of the children were crying. And that was how I knew them to be mine. Just let me rest here a minute, I said. They took my hands. I could feel the hot hands of my children, which was good. I moved my toes and my feet. I turned my head back and forth. My neck worked. The fireworks went off in the corners of my eyes. I can walk to town, the older boy was saying, through wadding to his brother, but the nearest town was 20 miles away. Safety was 20 miles away, and there was a panther between us and there, but also possibly terrible men, sinkholes, alligators, and the end of the world. There was no landline, no umbilical cord, and small boys using cell phones would easily fall off such a slick, pitched metal roof. But what if she's all of a sudden dead and I'm all of a sudden alone, the little boy was saying. Okay, I'm sitting up now, I said. The puppy was howling at the door. I lifted my body onto my elbows. Gingerly, I sat. The cabin dipped and spun and I vomited again. The big boy ran out and came back with a broom to clean up. No, I said. I am always too hard on him, this beautiful child who is so brilliant, who has no logic at all. Sweetness, I said, and couldn't stop crying because I'd called him Sweetness instead of his name, which I couldn't remember just then. I took five or six deep breaths. Thank you, I said in a calmer voice. Just throw a whole bunch of paper towels on it and drag the rug over it to keep the dog off. The little one did so, methodically, which was not his style. He had always been adept at cheerfully watching other people work for him. The bigger boy tried to get me to drink water, because this is what we do in our family in lieu of applying band-aids, which I refused to buy because they are just flesh-colored landfill. Then the little boy screamed, because he'd moved around me and seen the bloody back of my head, and then he dabbed at the cut with the paper towel he had previously dabbed at my pukey mouth. The paper disintegrated in his hands. He crawled into my lap and put his face on my stomach. The bigger boy held something cold on my wound, which I discovered later to be a beer can from the fridge. 
They were quiet like this for a very long time. The boys' names came back to me, at first dancing coyly out of reach. Then, when I seized them in my hands, mine. I'd been a soccer player in high school, a speedy and aggressive midfielder, and head trauma was an old friend. I remembered this constant liability from one concussive visit to the emergency room. The confusion and the sense of doom were also familiar. I had a flash of my mother sitting beside my bed for an entire night, shaking me awake whenever I tried to fall asleep, and I now wanted my mother, not in her diminished current state, brittle retiree, but as she had been when I was young, a small person but gigantic, a person who had blocked out the sun. I sent the little boy off to get a roll of dusty duct tape, the bigger boy to get gauze from my toiletry kit, and when they wandered back, I duct taped the gauze to my head, already mourning my long hair, which had been my most expensive pet. I inched myself across the room to the bed and climbed up, despite the sparklers behind my eyeballs. The boys let the forlorn puppy in, and when they opened the door, they also let the night in, because my fall had taken hours from our lives. It was only then, when the night entered, that I understood the depth of time we had yet to face. I had the boys bring me the lanterns, then a can opener, and the tuna and the beans which I opened slowly because it was not easy, supine, and we made a game out of eating, though the thought of eating anything gave me chills. The older boy brought over mason jars of milk. I let my children finish the entire half gallon of ice cream, which was my husband's, his one daily reward for being kind and good, but by this point the man deserved our disloyalty because he was not there. It had started raining and first a gentle thrumming on the metal roof. All right. So you ended up reading the section where we've seen that she's she's hit her head, right? But now it's like we're unfolding what that really means immediately for the family. So that was like, I don't know what you guys thought about when she actually hit her head, but the way this is, the story is set up, I was kind of waiting for the panther, right? Yeah. Um, so that was a surprise, but it was also 10 times more surprising because you didn't see it coming, right? A fall can happen at any time, but when you've set it up that we're supposed to be fearing the wild or being without the father figure, for an accident like that to happen, I was just kind of like blown away. Oh, yeah. Misdirection. Yeah. But in this scene in particular, um, well, tell us why you, you chose that part to read. Um, I really like the way that, um, well, one, I like the tone of that section, and I also like the way it unraveled the um, the grogginess, kind of presented that grogginess and the realization she didn't remember her kid's name. I thought that was really well executed. Right. So that's why I chose that. This scene doesn't have as many examples as other parts of the story, but I think it mentions like rain at one point. The story just does such a great job of the setting, right? Creating everything that is Florida. And I, I circled and underlined so many pieces because we live here, you know, so it's it's authentic. It's not just describing a place I think I could know based on the description. It's like, oh, that is it. Like the rain on the metal roof and, and all that stuff. It's interesting that we're just starting to see the kind of parallels between the mother and if not a panther, then at least an animal. When she describes herself in high school, she was a speedy and aggressive midfielder. And of course, we have the final line with the, how it, the rain will feel on her pelt being the last line of the story. And the way that her kids are so, well, of course, the kids aren't named, but there's this sort of dispassion between her and her children and her family, which kind of gives you an idea of that of how animals might treat their young. Yeah, they want to treat that. Yeah, they want to raise them so that they can take care of themselves and survive like in a wild atmosphere like the Everglades are. But there's still this strange, she's just the, there's no warmth with her. And that's really fascinating to see how, how that plays out when there's a, when there's a traumatic accident. Yeah, because that was the closest that they got throughout the story, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she didn't even feed them lunch. But when she's injured, just like in the wild, that's when it's time to take care of other people in the herd or whatever it is. Yeah, and these poor kids, 
they do so well. They like rise to the occasion because it is serious. Mm-hmm. I liked her though as a character overall, just being that like that's an unpopular character, right? It's hard to make a, a mother who doesn't necessarily fill the role that we think she should or act as compassionately as we think she should. It's probably hard to make them like a sympathetic character, let alone narrator. So I really enjoyed that. You don't see that perspective a whole lot. Yeah. And it's nice that the marriage takes such a back seat, but you, you already know there, she tells you that there's problems in the marriage initially. But then I'm thinking of myself as a male, and though I'm not married, I'm thinking if I were, and I had two little kids who we can presume are probably under 10 or 11, and I'm going to leave them in the Everglades. Yeah, right. right. And and not even get come back by noon. No. You can be back three, uh, <laughs> like what, four hours later. A day later? Is it a day that passes? It's a night. I thought it was only four hours. He, he, well, he calls her like, all, I'm going to leave you for like a day and a half or whatever. Right. I'll be back at noon. Mm-hmm. He doesn't come back till four. He doesn't get back till the It's only four hours, but like, yeah, if you're going to leave him, you're going to hopefully no. come back yeah. when you say you will. And we already know that there's a panther, uh, at least on the perimeter. Right. Some, something that everybody is aware of and everybody yeah. understands the severity of and he still leaves. And it's nice that that takes a back seat. And it's also nice for the woman's perspective that that's not at the forefront. Because I think that would be an easy sort of melodramatic trap where the woman's just, she's concerned about her marriage and this becomes a story about marriage. No, it's really, it's not about that at all. That's on the periphery. What's really important is this woman, how she raised her kids and how her kids have responded like Christine said nicely. So what did you guys think of the ending? I loved it. Did it surprise you, or were you getting the hints? Um, yeah, the hints were midway through. You're kind of picking up, uh, particularly when that great out of out of body experience toward the the latter quarter there. Yeah, it was really fun to with the forest is with the forest is full of light. You can, I mean, not that the what you can't see at home is that the illustration has a panther and that panther's eyes are glowing. And I can assume that we all know that cats see pretty well in the dark, and right. so you can see this woman just seeing like you know infrared. As she's walking around and she kind of has this really symbiotic feel with nature. So no, I think it was just a nice, the the circle was closing toward the end there, at the end. I'm like probably a pretty good example of like the average reader, if not below average. So like when I read stories like this, I need to read them like once or twice to like pick up on those hints. So that first reveal for me at the end where she's like on my pelt, it was like, oh my gosh. Mm. Like it packed a bigger punch, I think, than had you been picking up on these hints. And I thought, like this one, uh, and we'll get to Rob's story later on, but um, I thought that both of them had these like final lines uh, that make it so that you can never read that story again without having a totally different read on it, right? Anytime I read this story going forward, I'll know that the metaphor was of her being this, you know, kind of ruthless, top of the food chain, wild animal, um, kind of forced into like this motherly role. So I really enjoyed it that way. Having lived in Florida for a long time and, you know, I've been in the woods and found path panther tracks, but I've never been afraid of panthers. Right. Never, even if, you know, you know you're there around, but they stay away from people. Right. So the whole time I'm reading this, I don't think of the panther as being a real threat. It's, right. It's just a, a thing in her head. So I thought that that um, turn at the end was, was completely... Um, it didn't take me by surprise at all. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It's um, Even when I read it, and I've only been in Florida for how long, but yeah, panthers are not something that you worry about the way you do black bears. No, you Florida. worry about hitting them in yeah. your car. You don't That's worry right. about them. Yeah, because there's only so many. so fast. I could go on a whole side thing about how they increased the speed limits yeah. of these roads around here where they had originally said they were going to be panther safe. Nope. That's such bullshit. Yeah. 70 miles an hour. I was going to try to pull out some parts. I don't know if you guys want to do the same of um, just like lines that you that you really enjoyed. I, I thought that the other part, I mean, you'll have to read the whole thing to just get it, but just sh- 
the command of the language. It's so simple. She's not trying to be flowery or anything, but there are just beautiful lines that pop up in places where she didn't have to describe these things as beautifully as she did. I don't know. All the descriptions of, of the natural Florida habitat I thought were just beautiful. On page 11, toward the bottom, where we're starting the out-of-body, right after we lay together as a black and pulsing mass, which is obviously pretty creepy. But then the next paragraph starts, I passed outside, which obviously has a nice double meaning with I died or right. I went outside. And the, the way she describes time as being animal is, wow, what a w- cool and thoughtful and sort of scary way to think about just your perception of time as a person out there in the wild where you your sense of control is totally taken from you. Right, yeah. On the next page there, I, I underlined this little... It was short passage, but this is... I think this is like one of those sentences that like maybe you could cut if you had to like cut it for space or time or whatever. Um, but it said, The self in the woods ran and ran, but the running couldn't hold off the slow shift. A low mist rose from the ground and gradually became clearer. And then this is the line that I loved. It said... The first birds sent their questions into the chilly air. The sky developed its blue. The sun emerged. There's nothing wonderful about that section except that, like, the birds sent their questions into the air, and you know exactly what she's describing, like the slow fade into morning, right? The first hints that the sun is rising. And there are examples of that description throughout. Like, she compares, like, the raccoons on the roof to, like, burglars thumping around and just, like, sentences like that that um, are uniquely yeah, Lauren Groff. Really good verbs. The sky developed its blue, the sun emerged, and then, you know, how do you describe bird calls, questions? That's great. I think there's something to that as far as humans versus animals. Humans are always oh, looking to provide the answers, and for to play it off with anim- animals asking questions, which seems so much more wise to me because there's so few answers, particularly with this story. I mean, the, the woman doesn't even know her kids' names, or she's unwilling. She's that. It's interesting that the narrator obviously knows her kids' names, and she has that point where she forgets them, but that she's unwilling to give them. I think there's really something to that as well. Like I said, um, I read this just once, but I know if I if I well, I read it twice, but if I read it like a full third time, you know, like in a couple months or something, I'd have a different reading. But on that first read, I I like underlined um, something on the bottom of the second page where she's talking about um, her husband actually leaving and um, how she's not the mother that he expected her to be. And there's a line that I underlined because I figured that this was like what the rest of the story was going to be about. And I wonder if it's still true, but it said, it is, it is exhausting living in debt that increases every day, but you have no intention of repaying. And like seeing that line underlined again, I I think that is really what it's about, right? Like this burden of knowing that she's not the right kind of mother and that there are people, maybe not her kids, but her husband at least, and, and some part of herself, like worried about that the whole time and what a perfect um little anecdote to illustrate that right she tells her husband no we're fine leave something terrible happens and and it's up to i guess the reader to decide if she handled it the right way i think she proved herself her kind of tough love with her kids saved her life and probably theirs at least oh and that's a great point right you baby a kid or this woman doesn't even buy band-aids that's a great line yeah um and these kids rise to the occasion and whether or not they actually kept her alive, they kept their cool, right? They didn't do anything stupid. They, they didn't make anything worse. Um, they tended to her. They stayed yeah. with her. This is a, there's that moment the, um, where the, the, the smaller boy is dabbing her head with a, uh, or her face yeah. with uh, the rag or um, paper, towel. paper towel. And um, child, the small child's voice was high. He was singing a song. And I, I just brought to mind those, I don't know, I don't know if I've seen it in movies or somewhere, but like the you see like the nurse in some old medieval setting with a big rag and just singing. 
right. something like where did the child pick that up Oh, right. It's not a tendency he's seen his mother do. I think that's what we're supposed to take, right? Like, they're not emulating anything that they've seen or experienced. <laughs> they must have seen that exact medieval movie. I think it's like Snow White. I don't know. There is a moment when I think it, I'm not sure if it's before or after that, but when the family's out walking before the dad leaves and they are kind of all singing and they have the, de- they have the dog scattered in front of them to ward off danger if there is danger. Uh-huh. So I think there, maybe there's a kind of a whistling past the graveyard to that where they're kind of teaching their kid about danger and how to find it. That could be something. That's, that's the best I can come up with. So what do you guys think that we could... What are, what are some good lessons that this story teaches that we could keep in mind the next time you're writing something? I Well, the, the main thing that I was thinking about, especially for the um, excerpt that I read, was just the tone and how the tone itself... I felt like the tone was a little detached from the situation. And that mimicked and mirrored her state of mind, right. her, her detachment, her grogginess. How do you think that she accomplished that tone, though? Yeah, uh, the um, the detachment is usually, you know, if you have a sense of disconnectedness, it, it could arise from when the subject matter is disconnected from the style in which it's presented, right? So these very straightforward um, presentations of not straightforward things can create a disconnected feeling as part of the tone. Even in that example that I read about, like, the birds sending their questions into the air, like, that, it just says the sun emerged. Like, there was nothing, I mean, it's almost detached in that it's just telling you what happened, and it's not um, giving it to you through any kind of filter, even. Yeah, I do think the tone shifts, though. I think, um, yeah. like, at the beginning, it's it's one thing, and then after the accident, when she's the most groggy and out of it, it, it changes, and then it slowly slides back into what it was at the beginning and becomes more, um, not florid is the wrong word, but uh, more that kind of perfect words like prose perfect prose that you were pointing out i wondered if that mimic though like you said the accident itself like the fog that she feels yeah exactly that's that's what i think it's doing yeah right okay what's interesting about that for me is it's accident changes the language and also the presence of the husband yeah so once the husband takes off it's she's either free to do what she wants in terms of just narrowing the story and, and being a mother or she's totally her role has changed so much without the presence of her husband that she's kind of all over the place and she, she can't kind of collect herself. And it's like this new scary feeling of being a parent that doesn't need a, a male presence there. Yeah, it definitely has, I think, everything to do with the husband. Re- like regardless of the accident, if nothing happened while he was gone, I think we would feel that shift, right? Because mm-hmm. she feels that shift. I'll just go back to what I said about setting. A story like this, when you describe setting that authentically from the beginning and when you look for reasons and ways to... Just kind of inject it. The setting was everything in this story, right? It added that tension, that tone, the mood. And I, th- I thought that it was... Do you hear that? Oh, it's my phone vibrating. That's my sister, sorry. Anytime that you can inject that setting and, and add to the mood um, really works. And w- while I was reading the story, I thought that it was... Um, there were layers to it, right? Wow, it must be really important, Katie. Um, there are definitely layers to the story where the setting felt to me like almost a separate entity or character. It, 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 it in itself was part of the story, right? And then we have the tension with the marriage, and then the tension as the mother, and then the accident. It felt to me like there were layers in this story that only a very good writer would know to include, right? Maybe if, if you're just getting started, you, you might write this story just in terms of there being an accident and the husband not being around for it. But there's so much more to read. Um, and I just thought that if the setting wasn't there or if it wasn't in Florida, you know, um, this would have read so differently for me. 
I don't always describe settings. So, and I'm currently writing something about Florida. So I'm like, okay, this is what a great example. I'm going to steal all these lines. No, but I'm going to try to think about it every time that it's important, right? There was almost no description or a side about setting that I felt didn't need to be there. And those lines that you pointed out before, like the sky developed as blue, the sun emerged, are ways of describing things that are perfectly ordinary, right? but in ways that make us reconsider them. You know, they're, they're not, these aren't like the sky turned blue, the sun rose. We just glide right over those. But because they have those much more interesting verbs in them, we, we hesitate, we kind of consider and see it more clearly. What do you think, Rob? What could we steal? Ah, oh, jeez, you can steal everything from this story. The, the, the language is beautiful, and since we've touched on that, I, I really like to think about just how the mother treats her children and how she thinks of her children. And there are these things that are obviously a part of her, but she has so much distance. She talks about in their home life when they're not on vacation that if the mom's at work, she goes back to her hole and she retreats back from them. When they are on vacation, she wants to drug them with pancakes yeah, and high-calorie yeah. food. So I think I'm sure plenty of mothers can, if not relate to it, then at least sympathize with wanting to to relax with to have their kids relax but the fact that this woman does it she seems to have a strange relationship with herself too I, obviously she has a tough time coming to, to reconcile that she's a mother and she uses the nice word default when she's slipping back into the default setting of her gender or something to that effect i'm not quoting it exactly but it's interesting to see how she thinks about herself is so in line with how she thinks about her kids and how she tries to reconcile that toward the end of the story with the accident. You wonder if the head trauma is sort of a letting go of this or if it's an affirmation that what she's doing is correct. So I'd be curious to see a sequel where if, is this mother going to continue with the tough love or is this near-death experience for her whole young family going to be something that turns her into June Cleaver? <laughs> I'd be very curious to see what happens. All right. Well, this was a great story. Um, like you said, you read it in an anthology, but it was also um, in The New Yorker relatively recently, and it's going to be part of an upcoming book on short stories by Lauren Groff called Florida. So I think, Rob, you'll see this character. I read a little bit about that book, and it sounds like the mother is the oh, one great. recurring sort of character, and the other stories maybe stand alone. Is um, the book still on upcoming? It comes out June 5th. June 5th. Wow. Yeah, I bookmarked it, man. I'll be going to Barnes & Noob. All right, that's the end of our episode. Um, in our next episode, we will be reading a story by Donald... How do you say that? Bartholomew. What? Bartholomew. Bartholomew? I believe. Okay, it's called The Balloon, and it was written in 1981. So we will read that next. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye, everybody.